Welcome to the latest episode of No-Till Farmer, Influencers and Innovators. I'm your host, Brian O'Connor, Lead Content Editor for No-Till Farmer. New Leaf Symbiotic sponsors this program, featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they are released. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, New Leaf Symbiotics, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Want to do more with your fields in 2022? Now available in convenient planter box application, TerraSim by New Leaf Symbiotics is proven by Beck's 2021 PFR to improve yield by 2.7 bushels per acre in soybeans and 4.6 bushels per acre in corn, and nets $20,000 more in incremental income with every 1,000 acres planted. To calculate your return on investment for the 2022 growing season, and purchase TerraSim directly online for only $4.35 per acre. Visit newleafsim.com slash 2022. That's newleafsym.com backslash 2022. Russ Center was among the earliest adopters of no-till agriculture in the Palouse region of north-central Idaho, southeastern Washington, and northeastern Oregon. The Palouse region is marked by rolling verdant hills and lowest rich glaciated soils. Along with other farmers in the mid-1990s and early 2000s, Russ became concerned about the potential for topsoil loss after serving as a volunteer on the Lataw County Soil Conservation Board. He was among the first farmers from his region to visit the Dakota Lakes Research Farm in South Dakota. He became involved with Shepherd's Grain, which works with no-tillers and organic farmers in the western United States. Russ is retired today, but he maintains an active interest in his family's farm. In this episode, Frank Lesseter talks with Russ about the early days of no-till in the Palouse, shepherd's grain in the pandemic, and growing garbanzo beans for homemade hummus. How long have you been no-tilling? We started, uh, uh, oh, in the... 90s, um, but it was probably around the year 2000 that we did 100% no-till. Originally, it was um, the no-till seeding was done, seeding winter wheat on pulse ground or recropping stubble ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, very little spring crop, uh, consistently no-tilled in this region, you know, prior to the mid-90s, I would say. You're down close to what we call the Palouse, which would be the uh, southeastern corner of Washington and that corner of Oregon and Idaho, right? Correct, yeah. And we are literally, our farm is uh, sort of on the southeast corner of the Idaho portion of the Palouse. Uh, we we have land out on the breaks of the Clearwater River east of Lewiston, Um but right out on that corner. So, uh, we, and we have the, about a 22-inch rainfall for our area right here. So, is the rainfall pretty much consistent with all your acres, or is it very some high and low? We do not have a big variation. 
okay. not nearly as much as some of the some of the other operations that are spread around spread out yeah. geographically. So we're pretty consistent. The soil type is a little different. Our southernmost ground in Nespers County is a little more moderate slope, more south slope. Um, and you get inland in Latok County, it's more the typical Palouse, uh, more geographic varied elevations and a lot more slope aspect to the fields. Right. Well, one thing our Midwest people don't understand is what hills means to you. Tell us about some of the hills and slopes that you've got. Well, I think you've you've been around a few of them. <laughs> yeah, I've been to your place. <laughs> uh, and uh, you know, up to over forty percent slope on the on this typical Palouse ground. Most farms have. Uh, it, it depends on the location, but not uncommon to have the, the most extreme slopes that are farmed are in the mid forty percent slope. Uh, that's that's a small percentage of the total acres, but you've got to have equipment that works on that kind of ground. Yep, and I've been I've been back here in the Midwest on field tours on a bus where somebody was complaining about a one percent slope in the runoff they got. So, uh, tell us about the special equipment you got to have. Well, some of the early challenges, uh, and it's still a challenge somewhat as far as being successful with no-till is is dealing with the side draft on these very extreme slopes. Sure. Um, whether it's a disc drill or a hoe drill, a uh, single disc drill is, is probably more of an issue than a double disc opener no-till drill. But the side draft distorts on, on a single disc opener. Half of those openers are don't have the, the, well, none of them have the angle they're designed for as far as pulling through the ground. Say the mm -hmm. John Deere with a 7.5 degree angle. If you've got three or four or five degrees uh, side draft, so you got half of them at a two percent angle, and another the other half at ten percent or whatever, and uh, can create problems with seed placement. Mm -hmm. And the hoe drills uh, from your front rank to your back rank, if you've got a lot of side draft, you're moving dirt uh, those those back row gang ranks of openers are pitch and dirt on top of the front rows if there's much side draft. So there's been a lot of effort to try to reduce side draft, some success, but it's it's still an issue as far as getting the, you know, the corn belt, corn stand, you know, a, a plant every eight inches or whatever. You don't do that in our part of the world very consistently. <laughs> So implement steering probably wouldn't help this problem, right? Or would it with GPS? Well, there's there's been some effort on having a steering cart with limited success. Uh, it's helpful, but still, you just, I have not seen anybody that is that has been able to come with mechanically overcome side draft issues. Mm -hmm. There's been improvements, but not not completely overcoming it and a lot of those systems that, that try to do that, they've had some challenges as far as uh, having enough weight on the wheels that are trying to steer the outfit. And, you know, anytime we start adding more weight in this part of the world, it's, um, it, 
this weight on steep hills is a lot different than weight on flat ground. So right, right. That's that's part of the issue. So the next step, you got the you got the crop seeded, whether it's in the fall or spring. So your next trips would probably be with a sprayer. What kind of machine problems do you have on these hills with sprayers? Well, the, the the sprayer technology has gone to a lot more guys using self-propelled sprayers. Sure. Uh, again, probably the flat ground has has adopted that much quicker in our region. But uh, hydrostatic drive four-wheel sprayers on steep ground um, have some problems as far as keeping power to the drive wheels. You get on real steep side hills, and uh, with a hydrostatic drive for each wheel. Uh, it's just not nearly as good as a mechanical drive. Mm-hmm. And again, uh, some of the weight on these self-propelled sprayers, uh, unless you can duel them up, and some of them aren't, the manufacturers aren't very excited about you dueling up these uh, self-propelled sprayers <laughs> on these steep side hills, so some of the warranty is voided. So. There's more challenges with traction with the self-propelled sprayers than there is the tractor-pulled sprayers. Yeah, right. But it's still the direction it's going. There's more self-propelled sprayers all the time, and trying to get them, you know, aluminum booms or carbon fiber booms to lighten up the boom weight, things like that, uh, to make them more efficient and easier on the ground. What kind of boom, boom widths do you have on your sprayer? Well, our sprayer now, who's we, we've transitioned our farm to the next generation on our family. Clint Center and his wife Alicia are farming our farm, and he's running a John Deere. I don't remember the model number, uh, self-propelled, and it's 132 feet boom width now. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the boom uh, height control, uh, the the advancements they've made with that has just been a wonderful improvement as far as suspended boom sprayers working in this undulating terrain. Yeah. Let's move on to the combines. Now, you got uh, hillside combines. Uh, explain what a hillside combine is to some of our Midwest people. Well, uh, the Palouse region is, is nearly nearly all hillside machines. Uh, Hillco levelers on John Deere, uh, Case IH, are the predominant combines used in this region, some gleaners. And it's basically a leveling system for that front axle to keep your shoe, uh, the separation area, more level so you don't run into a situation of side slope moving, you know, the grain flow to the lower side of the machine and then just much more difficult to control grain loss if you get that shoe uh, too far out of level, uh-huh. uh, the shoe and the shit sieves, that part of it. So uh, the Hilco system, I can't remember exactly how far it goes, maybe around 30%. There used to be another system array leveler sure. that went up to over 40%, but I don't think they're in production anymore. They've gone out of business, so... Pretty much the Hillco system is the one that's used on on the combines in the Palouse region anymore. So tell us, uh, give me a ballpark figure of what it would cost additional to get the Hillco system on the combine. Boy, I'm not 
My guess would be a hundred thousand. Okay. I don't know for sure. Um, well, I think you're in the ballpark. So. Yeah, I, I would guess that. It, uh, when we first got one, it was about fifty thousand. So, didn't take long, many many years to double that price. I guess. Right. But we're about done talking about machinery, but I got to tell you a story uh, that happened in one of your fields when Mike and I were there some years ago. You were um, you were harvesting wheat. And you were up on a slope, and I set my camera bag down about the next row out where he was where he was going to come, so it, he wasn't going to run over it. But he, you spread chaff and straw so evenly that for about five years I was picking straw out of my camera bag. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, well. it's, it's like I just got pushed in there with strength. I, I would, I would think I'd have it cleaned out, and then I would find more. So, so uh, <laughs> you you were traveling with part of the plus for quite a while, huh? Yes, yes, and I learned not <laughs> I learned not to set my camera bag down as close to the combine as I had in the past. Yeah, well, that's another advancement that's been very helpful for no-tilling is the chopping and spreading capabilities of these newer combines. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's coming out the back is in much better shape for one-pass seeding behind the combine than it used to be. Yeah, how how big a header do you have on your combines? Clint's got a 35 uh, John Deere flex header, and then he's got a McDon 40-foot draper header on one sure. machine. Yeah. So, And you're doing a pretty good job of spreading this 40 feet wide, right? It does pretty well, yeah, and it, and it chops it very well. That was one of the other things. Some of the earlier choppers uh, just didn't chop it up as fine, and, of course, then it didn't spread as well either. But, right. Uh, dramatic improvement there. Well, even today you'll see pictures of combines from the manufacturers or videos in which they're spreading spreading straw and chaff about half the distance of the header, so you know they're not no it's not a no till situation. <laughs> yeah. If you want to have good stands and make a one pass system work, you very quickly pay close attention to what's happening coming out the back of the combine. Right. I want to back up, and you mentioned that the next generation's taken over the farm. Uh, did you grow up on this farm? Are you more than the first generation? I'm actually the third generation. Okay. Uh, and my dad's family, my, my grandfather immigrated from Luxembourg in 1908 to Uniontown, Washington, which is just west of a sure. short distance. And he married a second-generation German girl. Her uh, family is big in farming in this part of the world is the Druffel family as, as was her maiden family but mm-hmm. my grandfather got from from his start without much before he retired the second time he had all six of his boys farming and helped some of the girls and their husbands get started farming and uh, at one point in time there was 13 of us in my generation farming in North wow. Idaho from his start Mm-hmm. I owe a lot of gratitude to you know what he did for our family the the legacy he left as far as helping the you know the kids get started and you know carried through to my generation and it was a big change for my family when we our kids made the decision that none of them were going to be a farmer so that was a big change mm-hmm. <laughs> for us. <laughs> But we've we've got a very good young couple 
Uh, he's, the, he's the oldest son of one of my first cousins, is on the farm now, and we were committed to uh, trying to keep the operation in the extended family uh, if it would work out. Sure. How many acres are you talking about what was in your operation? Uh, well, when I retired, we were just under 3,000, and, and Clint's expanded that pretty dramatically. He's had uh, a couple opportunities, and he's just around 5,000 acres now, and he's wow. also running um, 100 mother cows. He likes cattle and trying to utilize them and some cover crop grazing and see if we can get some good out of the livestock on the farmland. Right. When did you retire? Well, I'm about, let's see, <laughs> this is the fifth fifth year, yeah. Retired when I was 70. Okay, uh, good for you. Stuck around for some mentoring and helping in the busy season. I still do a little of that, but I figured I had my turn at it, and we um, we pushed Clint pretty hard getting started there, and he was drinking from a fire hose for a while, but he got better every year. <laughs> so was he already farming before he took over your operation, or did you just get him yeah. started? He was. His dad and brother were uh, partners in an operation, farm and livestock operation, and we had a business experience or relationship with them. They were leasing our range land for their cattle operation. Uh, my mm-hmm. brother got out of the cattle business. Oh man, late '80s, I guess. Sure. And um, so we'd been working with them for several years. So uh, how is your? How has it changed? <laughs> well, it's been it's been an adjustment. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm uh, curious to see how you're planning your transition into retirement because the first few years were it was it was uh, I would say a sort of a struggle yeah uh, personally just you know you 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 just felt guilty not going out and working all day (laughs) right right and. but we've got grandkids in Boise and Seattle and chased them in sports. And, again, Clint's progress just gave us a lot more confidence that, you know, we could we could step away quicker. Yeah. Well, you're probably doing better than I am. I'm I'm 82 years old, and our son's running. My goodness, the, our, our son our son's running the company, and I still like coming to work, but I try to take a day and a half off each week. But uh, the COVID thing is really we haven't been any place in a long time, and we'd been traveling a lot before that. I kind of miss that. Well, yeah, we're Kathy and I have done a fair amount of international travel, and we had plans for more of that before COVID, and right. certainly curbed our goals for seeing some more of the world. And, right. Uh, that that's been disappointing. Right. So, do you lay the law down to Clint? He has the no-till. What if he came to you and said, "I want to start doing some tillage"? Oh, <laughs> uh, he pretty much knew, Clint knew, because of, you know, we'd worked with him through sure. the years, uh, he knew the reasons for why I was farming the way I was, and mm-hmm. we would have never picked a successor on this farm if we had any doubts that they didn't believe as we did and have the right. passion and the belief in what we needed to do to, um, you know, sustain that resource that right. uh, we rely on. Yeah. And, and Clint's on the Conservation District Board now in Nespers County, and that's really what, I guess, motivated me early in my career. Uh, one of the first volunteer positions I took, 
after I come back to the farm. I was with Farm Credit for a couple years after college, mm-hmm. but I uh, got talked into serving on the Latah County Soil Conservation District Board, and just the activities there really opened up my eyes to the implications of topsoil loss in this Palouse region and, sure. and became convinced that we needed to do things differently than they'd been done in the past if we were going to sustain this for generations to come. And just very fortunate to have that influence uh, early in my career. Mm-hmm. How did you first get started with no-till? How did somebody talk you into it, go to meetings? or You know, you build oh, on... meetings. Actually, one of the first meetings I ever went to... It would have been uh, Guy Swanson's dad, Mort Swanson. Sure, I've met Mort. That's how old I am. Yeah, well, uh, he spoke at a sort of a conservation tillage event over in Pullman, Washington at WSU. Sure. And he talked about what sort of motivated him to design a no-till drill was he seeded some winter wheat into spring wheat stubble with just some conventional drills. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, he just became convinced that we should be able to figure out how to do this. And it and it struck me that this made a lot of sense, what he was saying. We had a long ways to go to perfect it. Right. But uh, that was one of the early influences over my making the decision to go in that direction. And then a lot of the things that we did on the conservation district board as far as promoting reduced tillage back then, divided slopes, a lot of the things, well, basically to reduce tillage. and Those were the early influencers over uh, what happened. Yeah. And then in 1995, uh, I was part of the first group from the Pacific Northwest that went back to Dwayne Beck's farm. Sure. That, that was a powerful motivator to work harder at eliminating tillage and changing rotations and learning more about a lot of the things we needed to do to be successful. Let's talk about how the rotations changed over the years. What were you doing early on? Were you ever summer fallowing? We Probably not in my active management career, mm-hmm. but prior okay. to that, when I was going through high school and college, we were still doing some summer follow. Part of it was for farm program compliance, actually. Sure. But we ran into situations with this amount of rainfall with basically too much moisture on a fallow period. You know, there was no cover crop. It was just basically bare ground. And with too much moisture, the you know, with two years accumulation, not only the topsoil loss, but waterlogged soils, mm-hmm. uh, we were actually running into yield reductions on summer fallow versus annual cropping. So that was a pretty good motivator to eliminate that. <laughs> what did you start out with as a rotation? Well, the early days, it was uh, before we went to no-till, it was pretty much dry green spring peas and winter wheat, two-year rotation in this region. Mm-hmm. And some of it, with if there was summer fallow, it was, it was like the dry land country now and the real low rainfall regions, wheat summer fallow. The first step was just going annual cropping, eliminating uh, summer follow. It was a research work done through the STEEP program, and I don't don't know if you remember those days. I do, I do, I do. I served on the advisory committee for that for quite a few years. So you better better explain this to our listeners. 
Okay. DEEP uh, was the acronym for Solutions to Environmental and Economic Problems in uh, Cropland Production in the primarily the dryland Pacific Northwest. And it was research funding provided by the grain producers of Oregon, Washington, and Idaho. It was a tri-state effort. Uh, would commit so many dollars a year to no-till, conservation tillage, uh, sustainable farming, as we knew it then. The, the land-grant universities and ARS leveraged that money into some more federal funds that became available. The commodity organizations had growers on the advisory group to evaluate the research proposals every year. That provided uh, a lot of help in getting this region transitioned into reduced till and no-till, and I don't know how many years that was in effect. I would guess it was close to 20 years from the mm-hmm, sure. 80s through 2000 or later than that even. One of the projects as a result of the steep research work was a three-year rotation uh, done over a Pullman, Washington, very similar rainfall to us. They eliminated the moldboard plow. They were still doing chisel plowing, but they did winter wheat followed by a spring grain of some type, followed by primarily a spring-planted pulse crop, but dramatically reduced the tillage in that system. It still wasn't all no-till, but stretching that rotation just a little longer made quite a difference in reducing some of the original disease, root disease pressures we had in the the low disturbance cropping systems with short rotation, the root mm-hmm. disease stuff. So it got us over the hump on a lot of the disease impacts of uh, going to no-till. Yeah. Now, later on, you got into uh, more diverse rotations. I mean, wheat, durum, barley, spring peas, lentils, garbanzos. After, after our trip to Beck's farm, we, we tried <laughs> corn for about 10 years. John Asherman's still raising corn. We aren't. I've been in his corn. I've been in John's cornfields. <laughs> yep, I'm sure you have. We just did not um, have the luck that we had hoped to with corn. Little difference in growing degree days, soil depth from from John's farm. That's he's got some acres that he's making it work on. But sure, there there isn't much dryland corn grown in this region. But uh, we tried it for quite a few years, but. Still some more diversity. We've we've raised sunflowers a couple times. We're, we've gone into more alfalfa production. Clint's with his livestock operation. We're finding that the perennial crops, I think, are going to be an important component to diversity that we maybe need on these soils. Mm-hmm. Seed production, just trying to keep heavy equipment off of that ground in the spring of the year, we're finding that if we can seed a couple years in a row in the fall versus the spring, we've got better soil structure in that seed zone with fall seeded crops. Playing around <clears throat> with fall seeded pulse crops, winter canola, things like that to, uh, I guess, get some more diversity and change things up a little. That was Frank Lusseter and Russ Zenner talking about soil diversity in the Palouse farming region. Before we get back to the conversation, a brief word from today's sponsor, 
New Leaf Symbiotics. Want to do more with your fields in 2022? Now available in convenient planter box application, TerraSim by New Leaf Symbiotics is proven by Beck's 2021 PFR to improve yield by 2.7 bushels per acre in soybeans and 4.6 bushels per acre in corn. And that's $20,000 more in incremental income with every 1,000 acres planted. To calculate your return on investment for the 2022 growing season and purchase TerraSim directly online for only $4.35 per acre, visit newleafsim.com slash 2022. That's newleafsym.com backslash 2022. Before we get back to the conversation, here is Frank Lesseter with a little-known no-till farmer fact. Now that this uh, podcast deals with Russ Zenner out in the Palouse area of Washington and Idaho and uh, northern Oregon, it's a good time to look at the Greenbridge situation. Many no-tillers in the Midwest won't know what we're talking about, but the Greenbridge might be stealing yields from no-tillers who don't even know they've got it. Jim Cook is a retired Washington State University plant pathologist, and he defines Greenbridge as the weeds, volunteer crops, or cover crops that grow in fields between harvesting one crop and no-tilling the next. He says disease pathogens feed on the roots of volunteer plants, surviving long enough to infect the roots of the next season's crop. Windspread pathogens and insect pests are also a Greenbridge concern. And he says the pathogens in the soil don't care if you planted a crop or if it's a volunteer crop or weeds. He says roots are roots and they can be the source of infestations for the next crop. And it's been a serious problem in the Pacific Northwest where they count on soil biological activity to decompose the food that the pathogen gets from the roots. And that biological activity is a key to sanitizing the soil. So when we talk about Greenbridge today, it's pretty much up in the Pacific Northwest, but it's something you might want to think about if you're no-toing in other parts of the country. Now here's Frank and Russ again. What else besides uh, canola could you plant or seed in the fall as a pulse crop? Well, there's there's winter peas that have okay. been fairly successful, and the genetics are working on human-grade pea production now. Mm-hmm. There's, there's been efforts on winter lentils, and I think down the road we may even see a winter garbanzo. There's, there's quite a bit of research effort, genetic effort being put into that also. Right. Well, for just a minute, let's talk about wheat yields, because back in the Midwest, we're pretty happy if we get a 100 bushel wheat yield. That's no great yield for you, is it? <laughs> well, it's, it's been quite a variation the last two years, I can tell yeah, you. Yeah, Okay. This last harvest, we had drought conditions all well, this entire Pacific Northwest region, so the dryland areas were particularly hard hit. The lowest dryland yields we've had since 1977. Wow. Which was actually worse than this year. It's, it's hard to make the young guys believe that, <laughs> but <laughs> they thought this year was pretty bad. And the year before this one, there was record high yields. Uh-huh. Um, we had a couple neighbors participated, this would be the 2020 crop, in the National Wheat Yield Contest. Well, one of them, one of them was my cousins uh, just across the road from us, but they okay. had a strip entered in that yield contest that made over 180 bushel per acre wow. dry land. Wow. right. 
and we had Clint had a couple fields of 120 bushel spring wheat, which you know I'd never seen 100 bushel spring wheat in my lifetime. Yeah. Probably most farmers had never had, right. and uh, it was just unbelievable. The you know the the rainfall was was timely and. Compared that to this last year, spring wheat, a lot of it in the 20 to 40 bushel range. So wow. Quite, quite, a, <laughs> quite a difference in how busy the trucks were in harvest, I'll tell you that. Right, right, right. What proportion do you seed in the fall versus spring? Or... Oh, it's, it probably runs two-thirds of the wheat in the fall, and okay. the spring grain is usually divided between spring barley, uh, spring wheat, primarily that. Used to have corn, not a big acreage of corn in that spring grain leg, but Clint's doing malt barley and then doing a fair amount of certified seed production on the spring grains, so it depends on what they're looking for there for seed. Sure. Harvest would be... August, right? And then you would seed September, October? Yes. Our, usually our harvest on the early ground will start in late July. August okay. is the predominant. vast majority of the crop is harvested in, in August in this region. Mm-hmm. Some years the garbanzos extend into September. They're the latest maturing crop. And then fall seeding, winter wheat, um, late September into October, and some years it's been later October because we've just seems like we have had drier late summer, early fall situations sure. in the last couple decades. And it's part of climate change, I presume, but we're struggling to get the late summer moisture that is helping us with, that would help us a bunch on cover crops, trying to double crop for forage production or even utilizing uh, multi-species cover crops for grazing. Mm-hmm. We're just struggling to have the late summer moisture for some of those warm season crops. So when you uh, seed wheat in the fall, what kind of fertilization program would you use in the fall? Oh, typically, it, it depends on the class of wheat. The soft white wheat doesn't, you know, you're not shooting for high protein, so we can get by with less nitrogen fertilizer, but typically fall fertilizer on winter wheat, soft white winter wheat, it'd be 100 to 120 pounds of N applied in the fall, mm-hmm. and a lot of times using a nitrogen stabilizer with that. The protein wheat's hard red winter, probably another 20 to 30 pounds of N in the fall, and then some phosphate and sulfur. One of the changes we have made in the last few years, as far as the sulfur source, we've gone to pretty much relying on gypsum for our sulfur source. And we got onto that basically trying to look at what we could do to help reduce seed zone compaction with our spring planting crops in this region. Sure. The gypsum helps for soil structure. Uh, It helps uh, reduce the aluminum toxicity associated with low soil pH. And the sulfur is the only non-acidifying source of sulfur that we have. So that's appears to have been a pretty good move as far as uh, fertility efficiency and helping the overall soil structure and, and soil health situation. 
So will you come back in the winter or spring and put some more fertilizer on that fall seeded wheat? Usually, yeah, we'll soil sample in the spring of the year, see where the fertilizer is, do some top dress, but Clint is starting to utilize more than just the last about three years now uh, doing sap analysis of the growing plants okay. uh, to determine fertilizer needs. And I don't know if you've done much writing about that yet, but it seems to be just a discovery and knowledge on that whole process is improving the efficiency of application methods and timing uh, for these wheat crops. Yeah, we've done a couple articles on it. In fact, in our February issue of Conservation Tillage Guide, there's a long article on sap analysis. And then I was talking to Dick Whitman a couple of weeks ago, and he said that they had had John Kemp's talk at the Pacific Direct Seeders Association, and people were excited about what he was talking about, which includes sap analysis. So there's a lot of interest in it. Yep. Yeah, there is, um, and it's from what I've seen that what Clint has done, it, it's it is exciting, and it it makes sense what they're doing there, and and as they get better at it and more perfected in you know the sampling and testing methods, that I think it's going to be a a good tool for adding nutrient efficiency right. to our system. Cover crops have been a little slow to catch on in your area, but Clint seems to be doing it and making it work. Well, we're, we keep trying. <laughs> uh, we, we've had disappointments with the forage output, uh-huh. and again, it's it's the late season lack of moisture in this region. That That change in rainfall patterns has really been sort of a hurdle for successful cover crop forage efficiency I would say which has been a big disappointment because we're we're pretty well set up to utilize livestock that time you visited we're out there on that rim area where we've got grazing land on the breaks of the Clearwater uh, right adjacent to farmland and my original thought process was that this is going to be a real asset to manage both sides of that fence, <laughs> but the cropland side has been disappointing as far as the contribution to forage value. Yeah, Clint, he's he's persisted, tried a lot of different things. We've had some success and some things. It just doesn't look like it's helping us much, and yeah. that's been disappointing. Talk about the rainfall patterns. I mean, a few years back, most of your rain used to come. And a couple deluges during the year, didn't it? Well, overwinter moisture is is the biggest contribution. Okay. In you know, in, in my youth, growing up in fifties, sixties, seventies, it was not uncommon to have uh, rainfall during harvest that would delay it for some point in time or several times during harvest. Sure. And maybe an accumulation of a couple or three inches of moisture in August and early September. Mm-hmm. And that's just unheard of anymore. That August, September, early October sort of stretch in there, late July. But the late summer, early fall, moisture is uh, certainly less than it was early in my career. Yeah. And that's that's just put the challenge to trying to make this cover crop stuff, the those attempts to be anywhere near the contribution that some of the guys in the northern plains are doing you know with the summer moisture yeah 
that's that's been a frustration with not being able to successfully take advantage of what you see happening in some other areas because that is just amazing you know obviously Gabe, what Gabe Brown is doing but you know other other people with that other that summer rainfall yeah fertilizer prices right now are sky high do you see people in your area cutting back on fertilizer this year or not oh there could be the you know the protein wheats dark northern spring wheat hard red winter wheat there there may be a cutback on those acres i know there was guys uh, stockpiling if they had the storage fertilizer last fall mm-hmm. and that looks like it's going to be a great investment but <laughs> right um, there yeah it, I guess it remains to be seen. If if the price of wheat stays where it is, I don't think there'll be much pullback on fertilizer applications. Yeah. You know, if we have the moisture to do it. Right. Uh, you mentioned cattle. The times I've been in the Palouse, I haven't seen many fences. There aren't. <laughs> <laughs> when most of us my age spent our early career tearing out fences. Right, right. <laughs> between right. fields as far as expanded and people got out of livestock and you know it's just been a dramatic change from the farms in the 30s 40s 50s 60s to now they used to have all sorts of livestock and problem in the Palouse country is overwintering livestock with the soils we have and the freeze-thaw cycles and the stream flow as far as water contamination with confined livestock operations and trying to manage cattle in the mud is is just a tough region to overwinter livestock. Mm-hmm. Has, you know, there's been a dramatic reduction in livestock in this region in the last 40 years. Yeah. So what's Clint using for fencing or well, for the field, for the cropland areas, it's it's electric fencing. Okay. Yeah, solar power and He's actually got a cost share program to set up some watering delivery system for the cropland for uh, cropland grazing. He's got a solar uh, pump on a spring development with down in one of the canyons that's a good source and pumping it up to the upper end of the field and putting in uh, some water sources to utilize more of that cropland along the rangeland for summer grazing. Mm-hmm. Did you own most of the land you were farming when you were farming or renting it? Oh, it was a, it was a split of family-owned ground. We were predominantly family-owned ground okay. um, when when I retired. And mm-hmm. the stuff that Clint's taken on has been rented non-family ground, um, but uh, combination. Pretty much a cash rent situation? Well... Uh, we're doing it both ways. We've okay. uh, we're doing a crop share lease with quite a bit of with Clint to uh, sort of motivate him to try more things because we're going to mm-hmm. have a stake in the risk then. Right there you go. Uh, so that that was part of our motivation to encourage him to keep pushing the envelope on getting better at sustainably managing the resource. Mm-hmm. There, there you go. Still involved with Shepherd's Grain? Yes. Yeah, Clint's involved in Shepherd's Grain, and we also—I don't know if I've—I don't know if I talked to you when you were here, far if you knew our our daughter-in-law was in the hummus business. 
No, I didn't know that, I don't think. It's been quite a while since I've been there. <laughs> yeah, she's been in that about, well, just started about 10 years ago. But okay. uh, using garbanzos from our ground, from our farm, obviously. But uh, our son married a, a gal of Lebanese descent, and it was an old family recipe. And her, her mother convinced her to use garbs from our farm. And so she's uh-huh. now in the, they're in the food business selling hummus in the western U.S., and she just partnered up with a Chicago food company, Devonco Foods, which is in Euromeats, is their primarily primary mm-hmm. product, but they were looking for expanding their Mediterranean line of food, and Janine partnered up with them, and she's she's having some luck expanding that business. It's been pretty exciting. Well, I... My wife buys hummus. I also have to start looking at the labels. But uh, yeah, Zaka, Z-A-C-C-A. Okay. Um, is is the, that's her main name actually? Is the name of the hummus? But she's got about five different flavors of hummus. Uh, mm-hmm. In and I can't remember the name of the grocery lines back in the Midwest that she is just starting to get into since her partnership with Devonco. So what happens with garbanzo beans to make them in the hummus? They take them off the farm, they chuck them off the farm, then what happens? Well, they're they're harvested dry, you know, low moisture, sure. just like wheat. Mm-hmm. And then the, the hummus-making process is basically adding water and boiling and then crushing or, you know, making a sort of a puree out of it with uh, Janine claims, you know, she talks about having a clean label where... She has no artificial preservatives in her product and some lemon juice. Uh, I'm trying to think uh, what else is in it, but it's 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 very few ingredients to, to make the hummus. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, with a plant protein preference uh, in food buying trends now, you know, the, the hummus, Sales volume has risen dramatically in the last decade. Sure, it's still it's still increasing. You know, a lot of the plant-based stuff is is taking a lot of market share here recently. So, her timing to get involved in that was good, and uh, it uh, it's a good product. Yeah, health health food that's yeah, sort of value-added stuff. That was sort of my. <clears throat> I guess priority when I looked at getting into no-till, that was the reason for the start of Shepherd's Grain, mm-hmm. uh, was to take advantage of value-added opportunities on the way we produce the food. And uh, we did everything from certified seed to Shepherd's Grain, and now Janine with uh, Zaka Hummus to take some of the the risk out of, you know, trying new things. <laughs> right, right. It's worked well for us. It's been, farming treated us very well, and... Clint's, Clint's carrying on trying new things, and hopefully that continues. <laughs> what new thing might he be trying this year? Well, I'm not sure what he's... He's got some fall-seeded cover crops that barely made it out of the ground uh, last fall. Didn't provide any grazing value just because it stayed dry so long. It just sure. didn't get a start last fall, but he has not tried that before, and this we'll see how that turns out this spring, whether he can get some grazing off of that and then plant a, <clears throat> a cash crop after he grazes the fall-seeded cover crop, I don't know. That remains mm-hmm. to be seen, but that's that was something new last fall. Right. 
Do you think with the right cover crop seed, you can get some nitrogen value on wheat? Oh yes, certainly. In in yeah, any any inclusion with uh, pulse crops, peas. You know the Austrian winter peas or lentils. There's there's opportunity to have carbon or nitrogen contribution. Sure. With them. Right. Well, have we missed talking about anything in your background that we ought to be talking about? Well. You got quite a bit of life history here. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I just want to again thank you for your uh, contribution to sustainability. It, it's uh, we've been very fortunate to have your commitment uh, with your publications and your your annual conferences to motivate people to farm in a manner that is going to keep us around longer and. The other what I'm the other thing I'm seeing now, this this global concern on climate change, is uh, having a significant influence over consumers, and shareholders, corporate shareholders that are going to put more value on producing food in a sustainable manner, and reducing our carbon footprint. That's some of the stuff we're actually looking at in Shepherd's Green to where we can carry, um, you know, the the contribution uh, to the marketplace. Uh, mm-hmm. What we're doing, sure. not only no-till, but reducing our carbon footprint, uh, becoming more efficient with fertilizer uh, applications, utilizing livestock. Uh, they can be a, a very important asset on... Uh, nutrient cycling efficiency, uh, if we can master that. Mm-hmm. You know, beef, you know, meat's getting a, a bad rap here, but uh, they can be a wonderful contributor to agriculture doing a better job if, if we right. utilize them uh, a little differently than we have in the past. Right. I'm amazed today at how many consumers want to know what where their food came from, what field it came from, what day it was harvested. I mean, we've gone for years and years and years. Nobody cared. Right. Well, Shepherd's Green was the first flower company that right. you could identify where what field the flower came from and get a profile right. of the farmer and you know, there's there's the big companies are trying to imitate that now, but they none of them have the I guess the rigorous uh, compliance requirements that we have in Shepherd's Green to go into that product. And just you know, our our daughter-in-law's hummus on the shelf there. There's, it's it's tough to find another hummus product that you can trace the garbanzos back to the farm they were raised sure. on. You know, there's opportunities there, and the, the meat business too, especially now. There's some there's some very good opportunities for identity preservation and grass finish stuff. Uh, you know what what Gabe Brown has done with that group he's working with with their the processing facility is uh, there's there's um, there's a lot of opportunity. Right. Uh, any any guess or estimate of what extra value you've gotten for wheat by selling it through Shepherd's Grain over the years? Well, it's it's it varies. Just like right now with these very high commodity prices, uh, you know, we're pricing our wheat in Shepherd's Grain based on cost of production. And so we're actually below the commodity price. But okay. 
when I got involved in Shepherd's Grain, what convinced me that it's going to be, if you're a decent farmer doing the right things, uh, you're not going to go broke selling your crop when you've got your cost of production covered. Right. <laughs> and in the bad years, that's been a big difference at times uh, versus commodity price. You know, sure. Commodities way down. But I don't know. I would say in the, well, we're close to 20 years of shepherd's grain production now, 18, something like that. But 15 to 20% over commodity price average through the years, that may be a little high. But again, you know, we've, we've got cost of production plus some profit in that. And that's, that's, it looks to me like it's hard to go wrong with that. Well, right. When, when prices are really, really low, the cost of production looked pretty good. It did. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Right. Yeah. Well, and it's, you know, this whole pandemic thing has, has put some pressure on that pricing model just because a lot of these Bakeries have really been hit hard, mm-hmm. you know, with help and staying open, and you know, the for them to be paying more than commodity price right now, it's, it's really tough for some of those outfits to do that. Exactly right. So you know, we've we've tried trying to work on our our pricing model that we can, you know, accommodate situations like that, but still getting back to our whole theory on sustainability you know we've been very uh transparent with the pricing we have for our wheat mm-hmm. uh through the years and it's that's been a real asset for us uh to have some loyalty in the flower market right thanks to frank lesseter and russ center for today's discussion and thanks to our sponsor new leaf symbiotics for helping to make possible the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Before we wrap up today's podcast, here's Frank one more time. One of the questions that's come up from readers in the past is whether long-term no-till requires less nitrogen or not. And after 12 to 14 years of continuous no-till, Mark Alley says you'll be able to dramatically trim your nitrogen costs with no-till. He's a retired Virginia Tech University agronomist that has research data that indicates long-term no-tillers definitely won't need as much fertilizer as conventionally tilling neighbors. Allie also pointed out that most growers can maximize their overall profitability by investing in starter fertilizers for quick plant growth when no-tilling corn. Thanks for tuning in. You can find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies at no-tillfarmer.com slash podcasts. That's no-tillfarmer.com slash podcasts. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at b-o-c-o-n-n-o-r at lessonermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2413. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. Find us wherever you listen to podcasts. For Frank Lessiter and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm lead content editor Brian O'Connor. 
Thanks for listening. I mumble and jumble, but <laughs> I, people that don't get it perfect. Are